Almighty God, I thank you today and praise you for your word. The word expressed through scripture, through preaching, through singing, the word as it is heard wherever hearts are open. Lord, the word is your heart and mind, delivered directly to our hearts and mind, and we honor you and give you glory for caring so deeply that you would reach into our very being with this news. Oh God, we are so delighted to join you in what you are doing in and around and through us. And we are especially grateful this day, Lord, for those of us who have read your entire Bible. What a blessing it has been, Lord, to know you more completely through this discipline. We pray, pray Lord, that this will bear fruit with untold value. Father, we ask that you bless us as a family of faith as we endeavor to obey you, to submit to you, and to be what you have called us to be. We recognize that you are at work in our midst because we see all sorts of divine intervention. We recognize you are at work in our midst because we see the enemy too. And we recognize, Lord, that the enemy is the source of chaos and frustration. And so, Lord, we rebuke him in your name. And we ask that you continue to find us worthy to do your will. And we ask especially, Lord, now as we go to, to the, the seat of learning to listen to your voice, that you would make your vessel worthy for a few minutes to carry out your will in the form of the spoken word. For your glory, I pray. Amen. We're going to read from the book of Revelation in a couple of minutes. If you want to go ahead and find that in your Bible or your devices or whatever you use to read scripture, this one is going to be so easy for you to find. We're not looking for Habakkuk or any of those. We're looking for the last chapter of the book of Revelation. So go all the way to the back of your Bible, move forward about, I don't know, three pages, depends on your Bible, and look for Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. That's where we'll be in a minute. I'm really excited about the large participation in the reading of the Bible in 90 days and the number of you who have already finished the journey and the number of you who are well on your way to finishing the journey. What an exciting blessing it is for me and for all of us on this way. I've already heard people talk about what it's meant to them to read the entire Bible and how much the accomplishment meant to them, but not only that, the the insights they've gained. And I have this old poem I want to read to you that sums up what I imagine all of you who have finished the journey have realized. So listen to this poem when I read the Bible through by Amos R. Wells. I supposed I knew my Bible, reading piecemeal hit and miss, now a bit of John or Matthew, now a snatch of Genesis. Certain chapters of Isaiah, certain Psalms, the 23rd, 12th of Romans, 1st of Proverbs. Yes, I thought I knew the word, but I found that thorough reading was a different thing to do, and the way was unfamiliar when I read the Bible through. 
Oh, the massive, mighty volume, oh, the treasures manifold. Oh, the beauty of the wisdom and the grace it proved to hold. As the story of the Hebrews swept in majesty along, as it leapt in waves of prophetic, as it burst to sacred song, as it gleamed with Christly omens, the Old Testament was new, strong with cumulative power when I read the Bible through. Ah, Imperial Jeremiah, with his keen, coruscant mind, and the blunt old Nehemiah and Ezekiel refined. Newly came the minor prophets, each with his distinctive robe. Newly came the song idyllic and the tragedy of Job. Deuteronomy, the regal, to a towering mountain grew with its comrade peaks around it when I read the Bible through. What a radiant procession as the pages rise and fall. James the sturdy, John the tender, oh, the myriad-minded Paul. Vast apocalyptic glories, wheel and thunder, flash and flame, while the church triumphant raises one incomparable name. Ah, the story of the Savior never glows supremely true till you read it whole and swiftly, till you read the Bible through. You who like to play at the Bible, dip and dabble here and there, just before you kneel a weary and yawn through a hurried prayer. You who treat the crown of writings as you treat no other book, just a paragraph disjointed, just a crude, impatient look. Try a worthier procedure. Try a broad and steady view. You will kneel in very rapture when you read the Bible through. Now, those of you who have finished this journey, would you agree with Amos Russell Wells? I think so. You saw it, didn't you? It's absolutely magnificent. Amos Russell Wells lives from 1862 to 1933. I just realized that's about the same length of time my great-grandfather lived. He was born in 1862. I digress. Now we're going to read from Revelation. So if you could bear with just a little more reading from me, then we're going to get to some extrapolation. Revelation chapter 22, starting at verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will, need to light, they will not need to light a lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of an angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. 
And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And, the, and, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the life in the tree of life in the holy city which are described in this book he who testifies to these things says surely i am coming amen come lord jesus the grace of the lord jesus be with all amen the word of god for the people of god thanks be to god so you just heard the last chapter the last words of the entire bible and if you're paying attention even if you haven't read the entire Bible in 90 days, as some have done, you probably are familiar with the Genesis story of creation, and you've probably noticed that by the end of time, we've come back to where we started, that the Lord has brought us home, that Eden is once again the way things are. There's one simple but significant difference, and that is that Eden is not an isolated place in the middle of a chaotic world. Now it is the world. Heaven and earth are one and the same, and God is dwelling in our midst. This is what has changed by the time Revelation comes around. And so it is a time that is to us in our time-limited space a distant thing, but in reality it's already happened. In reality... The Lord, who is outside of space and time, has seen it all through, and John was a witness. This is why Jesus says to John, listen, I've told you some things, my angel has told you, my angel has told you some things, and now you need to write it down, because it's all trustworthy and true. Here's a quick little aside for you. Now, I, I stood right in this place, and we taught the uh, and learned together about the entire book of Revelation over a series of 30 weeks and uh, 30 lessons. And those are all recorded on YouTube and there's study materials and everything that you can access. But one question that we had to answer from the very beginning of our study of the book of Revelation is, whose revelation is it? It's Jesus's revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus that John experiences. It's not John's revelation. It's not the angel's revelation. It's Jesus's revelation. And Jesus is the one who is speaking certain things that we read in the book of Revelation. 
So many people think that the time of Jesus ends with the ascension and the Acts of the Apostles, but that's not true. Jesus continues to act. Jesus continued to act even as he took John to see what it looks like outside of space and time. And so John got a chance to see the future from a unique position known only to God and the heavenly host. And what he saw was the culmination of everything that we're going through right now in a day of justice. And I really want to emphasize that because most people, especially church people, have a tendency to think that it's all about God's wrath and God's judgment and trying to escape that wrath. And, and the truth is, is yeah, that's, that's part of the story, but that's not what we're hearing what we're hearing here in this place is God's ultimate goal that we would all be with God in complete harmony for all eternity. And it is eventually fulfilled. And so we get to this place in our scripture reading where we realize that God has been working toward this from the very beginning until the very end. And at this time, justice has been served. And those who opposed God, who intentionally and recklessly tried to, to undo anything God was doing, have been judged and sentenced. And at this point, the world is entirely just. And it looks like we're there. But we didn't get there on our own merit. The important thing we need to understand is that as Jesus reveals all of these things to John about the end of things, he makes it very clear through direct statements and implication that it is the master, our Lord Jesus, who makes us right before God. That God, when God looks at us, God sees his son. We are, in effect, standing in God's Sons shadow before God. Imagine yourself before the throne of God and you are standing behind Jesus' robes, maybe peeking around if you dare at the majesty of God. This picture of a place where there is no need for lights and lamps and sun and moon and all of that because the glory of God is all the light that we could ever need. I have to say this appeals to me on a very personal level. You see, I'm not worth the darn in the winter because I pretty much rise and fall with the sun. So, you know, in those long winter mornings that are dark well into the day starts, uh, the starting of the day, I'm not really with it till the sun shines on my face. And it's the same way in the evening. When the sun goes down, Dan goes down. <laughs> I'm just really looking forward to being in eternal bliss with the Lord and a place where the sun's always shining because I won't have any need to be weary in the darkness. But the darkness in Scripture is also uh, a representative thing. It represents the unjust and the unholy. And so the fact that God's glory is radiating unimpeded throughout all the world is an indication that God is all the way here. And there's nothing that separates us from the love of God. In the same way, we stand in the shadow of Jesus before God's radiant glory because it is like the psalmist said, the shadow of the valley of death. 
in the presence of Jesus, we stand in the shadow of something that is so brilliant it would destroy us. And in the same way, the psalmist compared it to being in the valley in the shade rather than up above in the penetrating death blow of the intense heat of a desert summer. And so here we are, not saved by our own merit, not saved because of anything that we could have hoped to do to earn God's favor, but saved simply because God desired it so much that God gave his only son for our sake so that we might be redeemed. And this is what we are redeemed for, this great day when all of God's creation is in union in one place under God's presence and authority. And it is a glorious time. It's best that we not think of our lives in such limited ways as we're tempted to do then, isn't it? We are so tempted to think that, you know, we need to hurry up and get rich as fast as we can. We need to hurry up and solve the world's biggest problems as fast as we can. We, we need to hurry up and get Cousin Martha saved because it's, we're running out of time. And, and so we Christians have this undue sense of urgency about things. As if God can't handle it without our help, right? And so we waste a lot of energy and a lot of, of personal capital in our emotions and in our being on trying to do everything as fast as we can before we run out of time. And what this, ta this passage is telling us is that God has a timeless plan for us. And that whatever isn't done now is probably that important, that the most important things are the things of God. So what we hopefully took away from reading the entire Bible is understanding that this is what God has always wanted from God's people, a devotion to God that wasn't about God's pride or vanity, but about God's supreme wisdom. That it wasn't God saying, I need you to be entirely devoted to me, like some people in our lives will do to us. It was God saying, you need to be entirely devoted to me. Because if you are entirely devoted to me, then you are not devoted to lesser things that will end up owning you. The entire Bible speaks of this over and over again. And what do people do? Well, they give in to the tempter, the accuser, who kind of creates chaos in their midst and then gives them limited powers to reduce the chaos and to somehow take authority that wasn't theirs. And then ultimately what happens is, is that we come up with human systems that we think solve the problems of the earth and humanity. When in reality, there's only one way to have what God intended for us to have, and that is through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have seen countless versions of the faith in Christ that resulted in religions that have little to do with Christ. We see versions of the faith of Moses and Abraham changed into something that has little to do with the God of Abraham and Moses. And so it goes. People are always trying to humanize things because we want to be in control, because we want to manage things for ourselves, because we want to elevate ourselves as the world's problem solvers, as my own life's problem solver. And this, this is exactly the opposite of what it means to sacrifice your life to Christ. 
as Paul says, to make yourself a living sacrifice, you are essentially saying, you know, not me, but you, Lord. Not the things that give me pride and a sense of accomplishment and achievement. Not the things that make me feel as though I have some authority over other things and and all of that. In the end, we have to recognize that if we did not stand in the shadow of Christ, we would be doomed. That's the message of the Passover. The fact that it was the blood of the lamb that caused wrath to pass them by. And it is the message of Christ, who is the new Passover lamb. It's still the same. You do not stand favorably before God unless you stand in the shadow of Christ. And in the same way, you have little to do with God if not through Christ. And so we have to put ourselves in the right perspective. We have to put our lives in the right perspective. And in so doing, we can more readily recognize the truths that are all over this Bible that we've been reading. The truth that what God wants from you is a humble and contrite heart. A heart that is devoted to God. And a life that is devoted to serving God. Now, it doesn't mean you won't get to do the things you enjoy doing, but you do them for God first. You place God ahead of your own attainment, your own achievement, your own pride, your own benefit. This is the message of the Bible. And on this day of justice that is described in the book of Revelation, we see a world where that is the universal culture. And everything else has been, it's been swept away. I want to leave you with this. The book of Revelation also gives us seven letters that were dictated by Christ to seven churches. And these churches represent types of Christians, types of Christianity, even types of churches. And so you may recognize these in your life's experience with churches and Christians and perhaps your own spiritual journey. The first letter that Jesus dictated was in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus. This was the church that had abandoned its love for Christ and his teachings. These are the churches and the Christians who have, for whatever, for whatever reason, fell in love with Christ and became devoted to Christ and then started getting wrapped up in their own programs and their own uh, uh, facilities and resources you know they 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 created a gathering place and a gathering based on their great love for Christ that they all shared they were like one of the vibrant small groups that I hope we we have all over Shiloh and and yet somehow they started getting busy organizing and institutionalizing what they had done for the love of Christ and it turned cold and became an institution dedicated to Christ and so often people are that way. And those are the people who will come to Christ for love of Christ and then eventually just make regular visits to church to put in their time and their devotion to Christ. The church at Smyrna, this, this lovely church that was faithful even in the midst of persecution, it doesn't bode well if you're hoping that loving Christ is not going to result in pain. It doesn't bode well if Smyrna is so highly praised and not at all negatively 
discussed by Jesus because it means that being right with Christ and living for his sake above your own is just eventually going to cost you things. It's going to cost you in ways that you can imagine and many ways you won't know until you experience them. But Jesus says nothing but praise for Smyrna Christians and Smyrna churches. Then there's Pergamum, the church that compromised its beliefs. You've probably seen this one, whether you know it or not, this Christian, whether you know it or not. This would be the one who redefines God in order to make things that don't meet with God's approval now meet with God's approval. Pergamum is the church that says, well, if Jesus was here today, he would have said that was okay. All right. Based on what? And so what you find with Pergamum is a church that has taken the, the, the outward appearance and the general doctrinal standards of what it means to be a Christ follower, but then they've kind of changed the culture in order to accommodate personal tastes. Then there's the church at Thyatira, the church that follows false prophets. Now, this can happen to any Christian believer unless they're rooted in Scripture. Small groups that are holding each other accountable in the presence of the Spirit of God and under good Christian eldership. In other words, if you are well-equipped, you won't fall for false prophecy. You, but you got to be well-equipped. It, it's no different than going out into your work environment without the tools that you require to do the job. And it would be like going on a camping trip without the right supplies or going to any other situation where you are at greater risk unless you have been properly prepared and equipped. And so what happens to Thyatira is that they hear interesting ideas that seem plausible to them and, and suddenly they aren't sure what the truth is anymore because they didn't know the truth well enough to begin with. Then there's the church at Sardis. This church was spiritually dead. I'm going to be very frank and honest with you. In my life, I have been in churches that were spiritually dead. They had lovely sanctuaries and beautiful music. They had people who were very proud of the carpet they imported from who knows where. They were people who had many traditions that they were especially fond of, and they definitely had the best noodle dinner that anybody ever had. But they were spiritually dead. The Holy Spirit wasn't welcome because the Holy Spirit has a tendency to shake things up and change people from comfortable to uncomfortable. That was Sardis. Philadelphia was the, other, or the only other church that Jesus praised and didn't say anything negative about. The church patiently endured despite its weakness. In other words, they weren't the biggest church in town. They weren't the fanciest church in town. They weren't the people who were uh, dominant on the local culture. They were a small group of believers who were dedicated entirely to Christ, just as we've talked about. They were a small group of people who held each other accountable and invited the Holy Spirit to direct their lives. 
and they were faithful. And Christ honors them for that. And finally, there's the infamous Laodicea. Now, if you're like me, you've had experiences with Christians, I say that with sort of a sarcasm. There are Christians who will say to you, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're just lukewarm, and that's because you don't agree with me. And Laodicea is not that. Laodicea is lukewarm for a reason we can all soberingly relate to. I've had people tell me in my ministry years that when I really push hard, when I'm really driving us towards scriptural Christianity and personal holiness through the presence of the Lord in our lives and all these things that I push and push and push and push, I've had people say to me, you know, Lord, Lord knows I've never heard anything like this before. I had a church literally where people told me that I was the first pastor in their remembering who ever told them about the Holy Spirit. And these people will say to me, it is so compelling that I can't help but feel moved. But to be honest with you, I'm so uncomfortable with the idea of being moved at this point that I just can't do it. I've had people tell me that many times in many places over the last 25 or so years, and it breaks my heart. Now, if you've seen The Chosen in the first season, there's that scene after Jesus and Nicodemus talk where Nicodemus is so close to giving it all up and following Jesus. And finally, and I don't know about you, but I wept as I watched it because he, he, he just couldn't. He knew that it would cost him too much to worship and serve that Jesus. Many of us here compelling messages from preachers. We read scripture and it speaks truth to our hearts. And we're stirred. We can feel our foundation tremoring and we can feel like something is really trying to break loose. And then all it takes is a little bit of fear and the accuser's nasty boy, you know, that bony pointing finger I'm always telling you about, that hosatan, the accuser, he points at you and he says, you can't do it. You've been this way all your life and you always will. So you can listen to that preacher and you can feel it stir your soul. But at the end, you're just what you always were and always will be. And I say, hell no. Or no to hell. Okay? I'm probably going to hear about that one. It's all right. The point is plain and simple. Everybody can change. And we're changing for a time that goes beyond space and time. You can become a more devoted follower of Christ. And don't be tempted to try to make yourself like someone you think is better at it than you. That's a fool's errand. Simply be your best devoted Christian follower. That's all that is required of you. Christ asks nothing for you or from you that looks like what he asks for me or from me. He asks for all of you. And it's never too late. But I will say, as the Apostle Paul had said about marriage, I will say about being past a certain age in life, it's a lot harder once you've become comfortable for several decades. 
And we got to own that. Those of us who are in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, we got to own the fact that we've been comfortable for a long time and it won't be easy to embrace the discomfort that comes with being a more fully functional follower of Christ. But there is no greater pursuit that you can spend the rest of your earthly life on. And if you do so, you can spend the rest of eternity on the same pursuit. And you, you can't fail because you have eternity to get it figured out. Sounds like a good plan to me. Think about that while I pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your word today, and I pray that you burn it in our hearts, especially that which is from your spirit to our spirits. Help us to be so devoted to you that we no longer fear the consequences or the discomfort that comes with being followers of our King, Lord Jesus Christ. And now, Lord, we offer it all for your glory and praise. Amen. Amen.